This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Anyway, thank you very much for coming. Wow. Um, a lot of people have big responsibility. Okay, so Baruch Hashem, my trip has been amazing. Um, I want to thank Dabin Shira. Don't make a face. You deserve it. Uh, they, they asked me for a long, long time to come to Chicago. And I was like, when Florida invites me, we go. When California invites me, we go. Australia just invited me, I'm there. Chicago? December? So, so Dominic has to do a little bit of work, but I am so happy that I'm here. And I, I just want to tell you that um, the Rabbi Reisman has, has been with me the whole Shabbos, and it's a very, very big physic. And um, I was told that the a- ATT was sponsoring, and I was like so amazed that your schools here in Chicago um, and your shuls are being sponsored by a telephone company. I was like, wow. <laughs> I was like, I can't get a dollar for more now, but I have to get AT&T. And it's not AT&T, it's ATT. So I want to thank them very much, very, very much for sponsoring. And um, I, I just have to tell you that it was an amazing Shabbos. It started Thursday in, in David's office, and he said some people were going to come, and we can give a share. I figured two, three people will be there. You know, the janitor and all the people. And Baruch Hashem, the, the room was full, and there were women the first year and the second year. And, uh, and then I spoke to Kailel Thursday night, which they were, they were, they were amazing. And, and Friday morning was something really, really special. I was in one of, I don't know all the differences in the yeshivas, but I was in one of the yeshiva katana, and I dabbled with the boys. And I have been around the United States, and I've been in Kenna for 36 years. And um, I, I honestly can say this, and I've never said it before, that um, it was the most beautiful davening that I've ever been at. You're talking about 6th, 7th, and 8th grade boys, that the whole davening, there wasn't one boy that was talking to another boy. They were davening the whole time. They were excited about it. The Baltilla was so short, he was such a little kid, <laughs> that he couldn't even reach, uh, he, he didn't, he davened beautifully. It was, it was absolutely fantastic. It was very big physics for me, because I see a lot of children that struggle. And sometimes, when you're in darkness all the time, you really believe that the whole world is dark. And, and it, it's beautiful for someone like me to see the young children dabbing, because we know that, that the Gaula for Kleishfeld, that's where it's meant to come from. I don't know if you've ever seen the Medrash on, um, you've ever seen the Medrash on, uh, Megillus Esther, and it says that Haman was very broken when he came back, and it says that when the Gemara, I think maybe the Gemara brings it down, that he had gone into Yeshiva, and he saw the Tinekish of Betzrabam, and he saw that they were learning, and he saw their enthusiasm and their purity and their beauty, and he said, he went home and he said, I am going to lose. And they said, what do you mean you're going to lose? You're Haman, you, the Xavier is written, how could you lose? And he said, I just met an enemy that I cannot beat. You should see the Medrash. And then Zerah said to him, what are you talking about? What enemy? And he said, I met a Jewish child, Jewish children that were learning. And the beauty and the purity, it was, it was amazing. And we finished davening, and I thought they were going to give me breakfast. I don't know what happened with that, okay. They gave me a tea, and they ordered me some cereal. And um, no, it was really great. And then I went to this first grade, this first grade class. The rabbi took me to the first grade class. And I think this teacher won some type of award. Um, she definitely deserves the award, but the first grade really deserved an award. They were saying all the animamins, by heart, in English, dancing on their, on their desks, pointing to Hashem there, pointing to Hashem there. I have never in my life 
and I'm in yeshiva for a long time, and we have an elementary, an elementary and a first grade. I have never seen kids so excited about one thing. Hashem. I've never seen this before. And I hope this teacher makes a video of it, and that's what we send out for everybody to see. Because that would give everyone an unbelievable chizik in Kleistral really needs. So I was very excited coming out of that class. And then I spoke to the eighth grade boys and the eighth grade girls, amazing. And then the two base yakos, and it was like, I mean, like, Dominic's not really making me speak at all. It was like eight times in four hours, right? <laughs> and it was, it was beautiful going into Shabbos, and the Oenik Shabbos was fantastic. He, he put up a tent, and uh, I don't know, I kept thinking I'm in a sukkah. I was like, all mixed up. But there was so many people that came in the rain um, Friday night, and today, Shabbos, it was amazing, and I, and I spoke in Chabad. I, I feel so, such a chizik going home. Uh, you know, I thought the Midwest, it's cold, it's this, it's that. It's very, very warm, and you should all be very, very proud of what you have here. Okay, so now that we're all friends, I can really say what I have to say. You ought to speak. First be friends, and then hammer. <laughs> so, I want, to talk, I want to talk a little bit about Yosef Atzavik. Yosef Atzavik is, um, I, I always say that, as a little boy growing up, I had my favorites in the Torah. You know, everybody has their favorites. Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov. My favorites were Yosef Atzavik and Moshe Rabbeinu. Yes, Police are outside ticketing on two weeks. You didn't feed your meter. What's going on? I was getting all warm and fuzzy. What's going on? Sorry about that. All right, we'll just wait for everyone coming back. So, as I was saying, my favorite is the meter. I mean, my favorite. Is Moshe Rabbeinu and Yosef Atzadik and David Hamelach. Why? Because they earned, they worked, and they earned their last name. Yosef was called Yosef Atzadik. There were many good, very special people in the Torah, but he was called Yosef Atzadik, and Moshe was considered our Rabbeinu, our Rebbe. But of course, David is our Melach. Tonight, I want to talk about Yosef Atzadik. In fact, this week's Pasha is Pasha Shmos, but there's a connection that he talks about. The connection. Between the last pasuk in in Horatius um, and Pasha Vayikhi, where it says that the Yosef Atzadik died and Vayisim Ba'arim in Mitzrayim, and they put him in a coffin in Mitzrayim, it's a different shear. And then we all scream Chazak Chazak in this Chazak, like hello, it's like the worst pasuk in the whole in the whole book of Horatius. He died, they mummified him, they put him in a coffin, and they buried him in Mitzrayim, and we're all screaming Chazak Chazak in this Chazak. But it's a very beautiful terrace. I don't really have time to go into it. But the terrace is that he had not been buried in the Trium, had he been buried in Eretz Yisrael when Klaishrael left the Trium and the Yamsuf and, and, and didn't want to split, right? So it said, Hayom Ra Bayonos. The Yamsuf saw something and it split. Ma Ra. What did it see? Arayno Shal Yosef. It saw the bones or the orange of Yosef that he died. Why did it split? Because it said, I'm Teva, I don't split. So, the Jews are serving on Wegezerah, the, the Egyptians are serving on Wegezerah. My Teva has not to split. But when he saw Yosef Atzadik, who went against his Teva, with the whole story of Potiphar's wife, so that Arwena Yosef said, I am Yosef, I didn't, I didn't sin, I went against my Teva, you have to go against your Teva, and that Hayam Ra Mayanas, Ma Ra Hayam, why did it split? Because Yosef Atzadik. So really, the best possible in the whole book of is that when Yosef died, they buried him in the Mitzrayim. 
Had he been buried in Eretz Yisrael, when the Yam would have said, I'm not going to split, there would have been no Arena Shoyosef, the Yam would not have split, we would have been decimated by the Egyptians, and there would have been no Torah, no Kabbalah Torah, and the only reason Hashem created the world gracious was for the Torah, so really what looks like the worst Pasuk in Duratius ends up being the best, and that's why a very important lesson that sometimes in life, things look very bad, but it's really for our good. So we all scream, Chazak, Chazak, and Chazak. And heard a very beautiful shot that really, at this point, Yosef died, Yaakov died, Shvatim died, everybody died, Christ was in the triumph. It looks like it's over. Who is going to help us? We had a leader, Yaakov Avinu. We had a leader, Yosef. We have no leader. So everybody in Shul is saying, Chazak, Chazak, Chazak. If you take the gematria of the word Chazak, Ches, Zayin, Kuf, what does it equal? 115. Ches and Zion is 15. Over is 100. You're saying it three times. 115 times 3 is 345. So what do we say? We're saying Chazak, Chazak, Chazak. 345. Who's going to take us out of Mitzrayim? Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe equals 345. So hidden in Chazak, Chazak, Chazak is that even though it looks very bad that we're in Golos, in the words Chazak, 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 is the leader of Klai Shalosh and Moshe Rabbeinu. So the Chidah says that there's a very big connection. And he actually says that we have to go into Mitzrayim, and that's what it's said by the Brit Ben Absarim, but the Avoid of Kasha that we had in Mitzrayim, that happened because of the sin of selling Yosef down to Mitzrayim. Had we not sold Yosef down to Mitzrayim, we would have been in Mitzrayim, but the Avoid of Kasha wouldn't have happened. That's what the Chidah says. So there's a very big connection between Yosef HaTzadik and this week's Pasha of Pasha Shmos. So I would like to talk to you because I think that probably in Chinuch of our children as a Rebbe, as a teacher, and as a parent, and in Shalom Bayit between our people, all together in the Jewish nation, there is such an important lesson to learn from the story of Yosef HaTzadi. So we're going to start off in the story, in the story where Yosef tells the truth, I have to do this because I got a little old and a little hard to read, so I'm sort of taking it off and on. I don't really have eyes up here, so I don't get nervous. Give me my class, like, Rebbe, you have four eyes? No, I don't really have four eyes. But listen carefully. This is amazing. He comes and he tells these two dreams, and his brothers are like, what do you think you are? We're going to bow down to you? You think we're going to bow down to you? A chutzpah? And really what they got angry was that you think that our father and mother, Yaakov, Avinu, and Leah, are going to bow down to you? A chutzpah? How did he talk like this? And they became very jealous of him, by Yikanoi's son. They became very angry at him. And Yaakov Mavinu, who was on the situation, realized that I have a very big problem. I have a son that my other children are not getting along with. And he said, I need to fix this. And how am I going to fix this? <coughs> and we know that Yosef even tried to help the, the Shvatim that came from the Shvatim, from the maidservants, to help them against the other Shvatim, and that didn't help. They also didn't like him. So nobody liked him. He was very, very alone. So his father came up with a master plan. I'm going to send Yosef to his brothers to ask them, how you doing, Shleim Achicha? How's everything? How's the sheep? And by sending him there, for a good reason, you're going to make friends. And I'm going to fix this. So the Basik said, So he said, I know what to do. But Yom Yisrael Yosef, Go to your brothers and tell them that you're here to find out if they have peace. Fine. And the Pasuk says the following. 
ish. And a man found him. And he was lost. Which is very interesting, because first it should say he was lost, and a man found him. And the man asked him, Matavakesh, what do you want? Shouldn't they be asking him, where are you going? If somebody's lost, you don't ask him, what do you want? That's where you're going. So what's this question, Matavakesh? What do you want? And the second question is, what do you mean he was, he was, he found him and he was lost? First you get lost, then you get found. What a fantastic answer. Which is so true. If you're going to wait to find someone till they're lost, it's too late. Then it's intervention, not prevention. If you're going to find someone before they're lost, then it's prevention. This was the Malach Gavriel. So the Torah is telling us the following. And a man found him and spoke to him. And through speaking to him, through speaking to him, he found out that he was lost. You can't wait till your children are doing things that are signs that they're already lost. Because if you're going to wait that long, then it's intervention. And at an intervention point, it's a lot harder and a lot longer and a lot more expensive. And sometimes you can't. Intervene. The idea is by you you have to talk to them. You have to spend time with them. And the kid that looks like he dresses the part, she dresses the part, everything looks normal, but inside their heart they have questions. Many times, kids that look to me very, very perfect come to my office to say, Rabbi nobody knows this, but I don't really believe in Hashem. And while nobody's watching, I'm really Machal Shabbos. And I'm not Machal Shabbos, but, but I don't really, I have a lot of questions. I don't really think this is happening. I'm like, you, you don't look like, you, 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 you're, you're not, there's no signs of this on the outside. And the Zayar says that everything, ladies and gentlemen, that's in the physical world is mirrored in the spiritual world. It's exactly the same thing. By the time you see the symptom, the disease is already in. So sometimes, not sometimes, we take scans and colonoscopies and, and women take all kinds of tests way before, because by the time you find that growth or something else, it's a staged something. And once it's a staged something, then we need chemo and operations and all kinds of stuff. So we go, we do scans to find it way before it happens. So the title is telling us that when it comes to spirituality, you got to do scans way before the dress gets short. Or the kid's not putting on filling. Or something else is going on. Because at that point, we're already too far. <coughs> so the parent is telling us, by Yitzhayu, he found him, he talked to him, and through talking to him, he realized, this boy is lost. So he said to him, not where are you going? He was Malak he knew exactly where he was going. He said, what do you want? What do you want? Why are you going to your brothers? What do you want? It's very sad. He answered what he wants. And he said the following. 
you know what I want? I want to be a brother. I want my brothers. I'm looking for my brothers. They don't consider me a brother. They don't call him a brother. I'm going to show you the Torah. They never call him a brother. Until way, way, way later in the tribe. He wasn't one of them. So the Malach said to him, by talking to him, he said, what do you want? What do you, what do you, why are you doing this? What are you going for? He says, oh, yeah, I just want to be one of them. That's all he wanted. He wanted to belong. We know with our children, that's really all they want. This whole bullying situation. I'm not going to talk about this. What, what's the... What's the worst part about bullying? I mean, today it's so different because of because of the cyber world. In my day, growing up, so there was a bully. So how many kids could he bully in the class? One, two. If he was a really bad bully. He could bully two kids. Today, because of the internet and Facebook, you can bully you can bully twenty thousand people. You can take a kid and you can make fun of him, which has come to my desk, right? And you send out a text to everybody. And all of a sudden, this kid comes to Shulon Chavez, and the four other schools that have eighth graders are like, <laughs> we heard what happened to you on Thursday. He's like, you had to hear, you're not even in my yeshiva. What are you talking about? It's all over the internet. So today, when you bully a kid, you can manage character assassinate him. So all a kid wants, he wants to belong. I want to be, I want to be part of the Hebra. Don't cut me out. So here, this attack was saying, I just want to belong. Okay. So you know where they are? You want to belong? You're coming with a good message? What's the message? To see how, how they're doing. To see how my brothers are doing. Good. So they're in this place, right? Just go there and you'll meet them. Beautiful. So things seem at this point, it's going to have a good ending to this story. He's coming with a good message. He knows where his brothers are. What happens? Oh, you have to learn Tyra. This is, this is life, everybody. This is life. So he goes to Dyson. Vayiru, the saddest pasuk, one of the saddest pesukim in the whole Torah. The Torah is very clear. Vayiru, Oso, that's what it should have said. They saw him coming. Meirachayk, they saw him from afar. They didn't know what he wanted. They made a judgment on him without talking to him. They saw him from afar. Oh, what happens when you see somebody from afar, everybody? Ubeterev, listen to the Pasuk. Ubeterev and Yikrev Aleyev, before he got a chance to even get close to them. Vayisnatlu Oso Bahamiso. They planned how to kill him. Sure, you make a judgment on another person from far, and you don't even let them tell you what they have to say. You're going to kill him. Never Ever, Joseph Hatzadik had a chance to tell his brothers, I am here to see how you're doing. Had they let them give the message, there wouldn't have been a Holocaust. There wouldn't have been a Spanish Inquisition. There wouldn't have been the Dasere Haruge Malchus. It's brought down in many Sforum that this all happened because Yosef Hatzadik was sold to the tribe. When we look at another Jew from afar, you're killing him. So the Torah says, they never listen to the explanation. Okay, so if they saw him from afar, means they didn't give him a chance to come close. The Torah goes through this word for word. Not only they saw him, but they saw him from afar. And listen to the word, Ubeterem, it's a Muslim, it's a criticism. Ubeterem, Yitrem, Aleyem, way before we even got near them, 
They made up their minds, what this person is, what he's all about. We're going to kill him. They were brothers. They got along. They were one group. And one brother said to the other, There could be only one reason that he's coming. Last time he spoke to us, he told us he had dreams. He told us everyone's going to bow down to him. So they passed on him. This kid, all he knows how to do is tell dreams. So they said, he's a dreamer. There's no way he is coming to tell us something good. This is a bad boy in our yeshiva. When I became the assistant principal, I made a rule. We used to have anecdotal cards, they were called. That every Rebbe at the end of the year would write a card for the next year. The teacher would be able to read it and know about the kid that's coming in. I said, are you out of your minds? You're writing about this child? Maybe he didn't like you. But he's going to like the next Rebbe. Where do you have a right? And maybe in the summer, in the two months he went to camp, he totally changed. You're not giving him a chance. Once that Rebbe reads that card, that he did this and he did this and he did this, the Rebbe's going to have in mind already what the kid's all about. How dare you pass it on this child for next year? Who knows what happened in two months or two days? The whole world can change. So just because he was a dreamer last time, doesn't mean he's going to be a dreamer this time. But the Shvatim said, <laughs> And they said, well, guess what? And now, let's kill him. Let's send him, throw him into one of the virus. And let's say that an animal killed him. And then we'll see what the dreamer has to say. They, in their wildest dreams, funny word, never thought there's any way that Yosef HaTzadik was coming for peace. They passed on him. He's a dreamer. We're going to kill him and we'll be done with his dreams. Yosef HaTzadik was a very, very big tzadik. And that's why his name, everyone thinks Yosef HaTzadik, he got the name from Hotifa's wife. The Ramaphosim would say that's not where he got the name tzadik from. Because yes, he fought Potiphar's wife, he saw his father, but he did something that was inhuman, much more inhuman than that. And that's how he treated his brothers. So let's go further. So they sell him down to Mitzrayim, and now they come to Mitzrayim. What happens? When they come down to Mitzrayim, so Yosef HaTzadik meets them, and Pasha's Miketz, and he says the following. The Pasik says, and when he sees them, they he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. I want to read it from inside. It says the following. Yosef sees his brothers, and he recognizes them. And next Pasuk, Yosef recognizes his brother, but they don't recognize him. You already told me he recognizes them. Why the next Pasuk are you telling me again? So we call it the Gemara Bitmiya. The Pasuk is saying, I don't understand. When they came down to Mitzrayim, Yosef recognized them. But the Hebrew how could they not recognize him? So you know it says that when he went to Mitzrayim, he was clean shaven, right? So the last time they saw him, he was clean shaven. So they didn't recognize him. So there's a very big cash on this. Because we know that Kidos says, and many of the Mofosh in the Medrash says, 
that Yaakov Avinu and Yosef HaTzadik looked exactly alike. It even says that when he went to the window with my Potiphar's wife, he saw his reflection in the window and he looked so much like Yaakov that he thought he saw Yaakov in the window. And that's when he ran out. So we know that they looked exactly alike. So one second. When he left, he was clean-shaven. He didn't look like Yaakov. Yaakov had a beard. But now, they're coming down to betray him and they're looking at Yosef Yosef looks exactly like his father. So they're looking at their father's face. So the Pasuk saying, the Hebrew guru, how can they not recognize him? They're looking at Yaakov. How can they be looking at Yosef and not recognize him? We don't understand. He recognized them. How could they not recognize him? The Territz is partial. The Territz is simple. The Medjur says when they came out to Mitzrayim, before they went anywhere, they knew this, their brother was sold to Mitzrayim. They went to look for him. What did the Medjur say? Where did they look for him? In Yeshiva? In Shul? The Medjur said they went to look for him. I don't want to say it in a Shul. In the red light district. They figured Yosef Atzadik, not Yosef Atzadik, their brother, the dreamer, where could he end up? Where could this kid end up? What's his potential? He's a loser. He's a dreamer. So where do they look for him, says the Medrash? Amongst the Zionites. Well, if you're looking for a kid amongst the Zionites, then when you're looking at his face, you won't even recognize him if he looks like your father. They already passed in their head what he looks like. He's got to be in the base Zionites. So this guy sitting in front of us, this cannot be Yitzvatanik. We are so right. When you are so right about something, when you make up your mind, thank you very, very much. When you make up your mind about a kid, about someone at work, about another Jew, when you're so sure of yourself, we can show you the truth in front of your face. He was sitting there looking exactly like Yaakov, but they were looking in their heads in a big sight ice. You're not going to see it. So the time he says, the hang light he was sitting in front of them, they were looking at their father's face, but they didn't recognize him. What a shock. It's my tell was, no, Shalom No, they're looking at him and saying, like, who are you? You're, you're, you're the king of the triumph, who are you? No recognition whatsoever. Okay. So he tries, and he tries, and he tries, and he cries, and they're still not giving him any attention. Let's go to Pastor Yigash. Comes to Pasha Vayigash, and they're standing in front of him, and he can't take it anymore because he really did love his brothers very, very much, and he didn't want to embarrass them. So he sends everybody out of the room. And he cries out, and he says, No matter what I do, you know what else he did? He lined them up for when they went to lunch, when they went to the meal. So he put every shaver in, the, in, the, in, in their age. And there was no way that anyone would know that. He was trying to give me recognition. Come on, I look like I look like Yaakov. I know every one of your ages. Like, wake up! I'm Yosef! Whatever he tried, it didn't work. And many times he went to his room, it says, and he cried. What's with them? I'm giving them hints. I look like him. No. They made a decision. He's a loser. Finished! He's in a losing place! This kid is done! <laughs> then you never see the truth once you make that decision. So he said to them, Ani Yosef. Ha'oid He did not say Ha'oid Avinu Chai. 
He should have said, is our father alive? He said, is my father alive? Do you know what he was saying to them? You're telling me all these stories, how you care about your father, and you don't want him to die, and you're very worried about him, and I'm listening to all these stories, and he's like, if you were so worried about your father, I need your safe. He's not your father. You didn't care when you sold me what it did to our father? You think that just being a child born to a parent, that makes him your father? No, it's how you treat your father that makes him your father. And it's how you treat your mother, that's what makes her your mother. So he said to them, he's my father. Don't give me all your stories. But he's your father. If he was your father, you would have never done this to him. Listen to this. When you hear this, you're going to jump out of your chairs. I, when I read this shot, I jumped out of my chair. Listen to what happened. He says, I need Yosef, and you're allowed to jump out of your chairs. It's okay. I won't say anything. Listen to this. And his brothers could not answer him. Why? Because they couldn't stand in front of him. No, says the Chidah. Me From his face. When they heard it was Yosef, they looked at his face. They said, oh my God, it's Yaakov. From his face. They've seen his face so many times in the story, and they never recognized him. Kingdom, how do we part of? They said, I looked at his face all the time, and I didn't recognize it. I was so sure that I was right. Kingdom, how do we part of? They were embarrassed from his face. Oh, the young Hadin, says the Medrash. When you come up to the next world and you find out all the decisions you were so sure about in life, your mamish was so sure that you didn't even see the other person's face. You didn't see the other Jewish person's face. You didn't see the Dikunish or Yaakov and every Jew. You were passing on every Jew and you made up your mind. Kingdom Halloween part of all Madin, says the Medrash. Don't be so sure of yourselves ever. When it comes to deciding on a child or on any other Jew, religious, not religious, it makes no difference on any other Jew. And they didn't know what to answer. And he said, don't worry, because he was a big tzaddik. Well, Yomi Yosef Alecha, listen carefully. And he said, there's still just one thing that I want from you guys. Geshu na Eli, come close to me. Please come close to me. Well, you go to and they came close. But Yomi, and he said... I need, he already said it. Why is he saying it again? I need Yosef Achichem. I am your brother. I just want to be your brother. Who you sold me to betray him. Still nothing happens. They go on. The passage goes on. And he laid, he fell on the Savari Binyamin. And he cried. He kissed all his brothers. And he cried on them. They still, they, they heard him, they sold him to the tribe. They should have cried on his shoulder. Why did he cry on their shoulder? Well, the answer is, they still didn't come forward. So he took each one. This is what makes him a tzaddik. He was hurt. He was sold. They passed it on him. Well, who was making up between the two? Are they crying on his shoulder? Are they kissing him? No! Says the Pasek. Even though he was so hurt, he went to every single brother and he kissed him, and he cried on him. 
But after he came to he told for the first time they called him the Jews. And after he did this, he finally got them. Dibru Echavito, his brothers included him, and they spoke to him. Now, you want to know the Kiddush Hashem when you treat another Jew correctly? And all of a sudden, everything was flying. They went out there to everybody. And the whole base pyro heard. Maybe it went viral, I don't know. Pyro maybe had, had computers. But they, the whole place went. What did they hear? What did they hear? Bo'u Achei Paro knew what was going on in Yosef's heart. For the first time, it was the brothers of Yosef. And this was good. For the non-Jewish people to see, the Jewish people were brothers. That's what made Paro and Mitzrayim happy. Speak to your brothers. And this is why his name was Yisifatzad. And at all the way at the end, at the end of Pasha's Vayechid, when his brothers say to him, we expect you to take revenge because their father died. So Yosef says the following to them. First of all, they made it up, of course, it says because they wanted to make Shalom Bayez, because Yaakov never said anything. And Yosef knew that. But they said the following. They said to Yosef, Vayechu, Yosef, on our son of Hesha and Hefa, please, please forgive us for the sin that we did. Again, it says they didn't cry, Yosef cried. When they spoke to him and they were saying, please forgive us and, and, and don't take revenge, he cried because he said, You still don't know me! Revenge! I love you guys! I'm your brother! He cried, they didn't cry, I'm going to take revenge on you? This is the tzaddik. Right? And the brother said, They still didn't get it. We'll be servants. Just don't kill us. Don't kill our children. Don't kill our families. You're worried about me? What do you think? I, I'm God? You thought you were doing me a bad? She made me a king that I could save, that I could save the whole world. This was Yosef Atzadik. That's why he was called a tzaddik. This is what we need to learn from the story of Yosef Atzadik. Don't judge kids. Don't judge anybody. Give them a chance to tell you what's going on. When, when a child is doing something wrong, it's a, it's a symptom. I always say that. Don't throw the kid out. Find out why. Rabbi, Rabbi Roddy Greenwald is my, is, my, is, my, is my dean in my high school. We used to have a high school in Muncie. And he had a teacher that came to him one day and said, Rabbi, it's me or this girl? Either I'm leaving or she's leaving. Rabbi Buell asked, what's going on? He said, every day she comes, and her tzniah's button is open, her top button is open, and I tell her to close it, and she closes it. He says, no, what's the problem? The next day she comes in, it's open again. I tell her to close it, she closes it. And next day, it's open again. He says, how long is this going on? Almost three weeks. Haven't you figured out that's not working? <laughs> so he said to her, did you ask her why? Why she closes it and the next day it's open? Maybe something's going on at home. Did you ask her one time why? That's the symptom. It's not the disease. Did you stop and ask the kid why? She goes, no. He goes, you're right. It's either you or her. It's you. <laughs> True story. 
we'll make a judgment call, even by the past of what's going on, maybe this time there's a change. So I want to tell you an amazing story about a little boy. This little boy all of a sudden started mumbling. Came home, mumbled. Went to school, mumbled. One day the Rebbe calls and says, listen, I don't know what's going on. I think we need to take your little boy to a therapist. In class, every time a kid says something to him, he starts mumbling under his breath. I don't know if he's cursing them. I don't know what he's doing. He's mumbling under his breath. Paul says, you know what's funny? He does that at home too. Every time his siblings start up with him, he mumbles under his breath. You know what? We're going to take him to a therapist. We send him home today. We'll talk to him. So the little boy comes home. The father says, we really need to talk to you. Something's going on. He says, what's wrong? He says, you know, we realize at home, every time your brothers and sisters start up with you, you stop mumbling under your breath. It's not, it's not the way to act. It's not the way that, you know, to, if you need to talk about what's going on, we're, we're glad to talk to you. You read called today. You read said, that you're doing this in school also. I think we need to go to a therapist and find out. She would go with us to find out what's going on. You became a mumbler. <laughs> she says, Tati, I'll tell you why. He says, is there a reason? He says, yeah. He says, okay, what's the reason? It's a true story. He said, So the kid told his father the following. A few weeks ago, about a month ago, maybe a few weeks ago, my Rebbe told a story about a Chaim Kainesti. But there was this woman who didn't have this couple, didn't have children for like 15 years, and they came to Rebbe Chaim, and they came for a bracha. No, not a bracha, a hafkacha. That's going to happen. And Rebbe said, Tzlocha and bracha, mit Hashem. And the, the girl said, no, 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 no. Told her husband, I don't want no bracha. I want a hafkacha. I want him to say that we're going to have a child. Went back in. My Rebbeinson said she wants a haftacha. Rebbeinson understands that. The Rebbeinson wants a haftacha, you better give her a haftacha. <laughs> so he says to this man, he says, tell your Rebbeinson, I don't have the kaya to give a haftacha for children. But if you find somebody who was embarrassed in public and didn't answer back, that person has a kaya because they went against their teva to do miracles. Okay. He goes back and tells this to his wife. His wife's like, no. No, I don't want this story to go to someone else. What? I've talked up from Rukhaim. Went back in. Rukhaim says, I can't help you. The only person in the world that can help you is someone who got embarrassed in public and didn't answer. Okay. So they're like, okay, another story, right? They went through enough of talkers and stories and what to do. Fine, so they didn't take it seriously. And that, that was it. About a year later, or half a year, whatever, close to a year later, this girl, this woman who doesn't have children, goes to a wedding. And the, 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 daughter, the girl that was getting married... Her mother and father were divorced. And her mother was not invited to the wedding. The father was remarried, and the first mother was not invited. It was a very bad divorce. She was not invited to the wedding. She decided she's crashing. This wedding was in B'nai Barak. She comes to the wedding. She crashes. She comes in. She wants to do one dance with her daughter, Kala. And the mother-in-law starts screaming and yelling, you ruined my son's life. You ruined my grandchildren's life. You cannot dance with her. Get out of here. Screaming like a wild woman. And this poor, this woman, right, she's embarrassed in front of everybody. And the mice, she's like, I'm going to call the Mishnah to get out. And this woman walks out of the wedding. This girl, who didn't have children for 15 years, is at the wedding. And she's standing there watching this. And it's like the most terrible thing in the world. And all of a sudden she goes, wow, she was just embarrassed in front of the whole wedding. I'm going to go get a brothel. It's a true story. So she runs out. And this lady, right, who's all embarrassed, is leaving the wedding. She's sort of a little bit scared that... 
the mother is going to go running after her. So all of a sudden she sees this girl running after her. Hey, you! In the frit, right? Hey, you! And she thinks it's the other family, right? So she starts running even faster. You see this one running after this one. Finally, she catches up and she says, What do you want from me? I was good. What do you want from me? She says, I want a bracha. I want a bracha? She says, Yes, I went to a client, and a client said, and I never saw someone get embarrassed in public like what you just went through. And you didn't say one word to your mother-in-law. You didn't say one word. You just walked out. Please, I don't have children. Give me a bracha. So she says, my bracha is an ah. She says, bracha, that next year at this time, you should make a bris. After 15 years, no children, she makes a bris. Who is the sandek? It's Chaim Kainas. And he told those the story. The story is in the name of Shemayach. Listen to this, ladies and gentlemen. This little boy tells his father, you know, Tati, the Rebbe, every morning before we start learning, he says names of people that are very sick. So I wrote them down and I memorized them. So at school, anytime a boy starts up with me and he embarrasses me, I mumble under my breath the names of the sick people because of Chaim said that I have the power to do miracles. And at home, when, when my brothers and sisters embarrass me, that's what I say. I know all these names. And he starts reading off the names in front of his parents. My shaman this, my that. And his father's like, oh my gosh, we thought you were sick. We're taking you, we're taking you to a therapist. And really, you're a tzaddik. You look at someone from far, and you don't ask him, why are you mumbling? What's going on? There's something wrong with this kid. But if you come close to that person, whether it's a husband and a wife talking to each other, or a father and a child talking to each other, and you ask, why? Why? And you, and you communicate, and you talk, you might find out that the kid that you think is mumbling is a big static by the dog. Because what is he mumbling? He's saying underneath his breath, people should get better. Because he's taking insults and he's not answering back. What a lesson, what a story. I'm a Rebbe, how many mistakes I've made. And I'm, I'm very nervous because I wasn't the greatest Rebbe when I first started and I didn't know all this stuff. And I don't know how many kids I heard. I don't know how many kids I didn't ask, why, what's going on, what's going on in your life, come talk to me. How many kids I made a decision on because whatever they got on their test or whatever someone else told me about them. Learning disabilities. I tell it to my, to my, to my teachers every single year before we start school. I'll tell you about learning disabilities. There's one person in the Torah that had a learning disability that the Torah repeats over and over. Moshe Rabbeinu, this week's Pasha. Kfat peh, kfat peh, kfat peh. He can't talk, he limps, he stutters, he has no voice, he can't talk. Aroused for sight. His mouth is twisted and burnt. Torah, we don't talk about people's, you know, disabilities. Over and over, read how many times it says in this week's Pasha. Why? Why do we talk about Moshe's disabilities? He stuttered, he couldn't talk, and he says, Hashem, I can't talk. I'm going to go to Paro, the Medrash says, I'm going to tell Paro, I represent the strongest God in the world. Really? Yes, we're going to take all the slaves, the Jewish slaves, out of the tribe. Paro's like, Jewish slaves out of the tribe. Not one slave ever got out of the tribe. Not one. They had these lions that were at the gates that would rip them apart. They had the craziest kishop. The Medrash says, never did a slave escape the tribe. In walks Moshe Rabbeinu. I'm the representative of God. What slave? The whole nation. And Moshe Rabbeinu says to Hashem, when I'm going to do that, I'm going to be stuttering. And I'm going to be listening. And you know what Paul is going to say? Really? Well, if your God is so powerful, he's not even a speech therapist. <laughs> you can't even fix your stutter and your lisp. And I'm worried about him. He's a Take him out of the tribe. So Moshe Rabbeinu said, don't send me 
Because it's going to be a Chilun Hashem. I'm not worried about myself. I don't care. But you, Hashem, it's going to be the biggest Chilun Hashem. And Hashem said, don't worry about me. I need a ch- of someone who cannot speak well. Because if you could speak well, Mitzrayim is going to say, uh, we didn't let him out of Mitzrayim. He was a great speaker. He talked his way out of Mitzrayim. So specifically, Moshe Rabbeinu's disability is his greatest ability. You know what I tell my teachers? There's only one mouth in the whole Torah that God decided he wanted to speak to. Pe'el-peh. Not Rome, not Yitzhak, not Yaakov, not Aaron, not the perfect mouth, the mouth with the burnt tongue, with the burnt lips that stuttered and lived. Hashem said, that's the mouth I want to talk to. Pe'el-peh. The kid with the disability, the kid that's struggling, the person that's struggling, that's the one Hashem wants to talk to. Pe'el-peh. Not Aaron, not a Rome, Yitzhak, not Yaakov. What a lesson for this week's passion. And that's why the Torah keeps telling us, he couldn't talk, he couldn't talk, he couldn't talk. But guess what? I could talk. And when I wanted to talk to Hashem, who did I talk to, Pelper? The guy who couldn't talk. Or Shrabbeinu, the one who couldn't talk, that's who I spoke to. This is Torah. This is Judaism. Not judging people. Not making decisions on people. Not judging our kids. Not throwing them out. Just the opposite. Finding out what's the problem, what are you going through? Let me help you. That's the education system. That's what parents are supposed to do with children. Yes, it takes time. It's much easier to throw them out. It's much easier to make a decision. If they would have just given Yosef Atzadik time, no Holocaust. No six million Jews. All the death from the selling of Yosef till today, the Svarim bring down the outline of selling the Hiraz Yosef. All you need to do is say, why are you here? You would have said, to make peace, brothers. And it would have been over. But they made a decision on him before he ever got here. So I'll tell you a story. One of my... My greatest story that happened to me in my life was the girl that I taught. So I was ready till 10 years, till 10 years ago. For the first 26 years of teaching... I was an 8th grade Rebbe of boys. I taught boys, I didn't teach girls. And I was always a good storyteller. I'm not, some of the people who got to hear the Shabbos, my first grade story, I have my, how my homework ate my hamster. It's a whole different story. Not just tonight, but whoever heard it, heard it. Okay? So I was, I was, a, I was I'm a storyteller. I can tell stories once in a while. So I got a phone call. There was in New York on Quentin Avenue, there was a post rehab place open for Jewish boys and Jewish girls who came out of drug rehab and now they were clean. So they opened up this place because the, the biggest problem with addiction and, and addicts is if you give them time, they're going to fall back. So we created in Brooklyn a place for kids to come with a pool table and, and computers and, and a ping pong table and music and couches so that they'd have a place to hang out and chill at night till 12, 1 o'clock and then they would go home to sleep. So we were sort of keeping them off the street. And it was called Judah's Place, actually. And I got a call from someone at Judah's place, and they said, Rabbi Wallstein, could you do us a favor? Tishabov night, of all nights. Tishabov night, at midnight, we'd like you to come and talk to the boys and girls. I never spoke to a, uh, I never spoke to a kid that was off the derrick. I taught, I taught children that were from non-religious homes. It was a Kirib school. I never taught religious school, religious kids that were angry or anything like that. I taught kids in a day school. It was very nice. I had my little class. Everything was nice and quiet. Have my boys, we played football, we ate pizza, we met a little tomorrow, a little homage, right? It was fun. 
was great. I had my boys. They said, okay. You know what? I never did this. What do we do? Just about to say, no. Fine, 12 o'clock, I'll come. I walk in there. There's three girls. There were either two or three boys. They're sitting on the couch, right? You sit down in such a chair. And I'm like, looking at these kids. I'm like, hi. <laughs> My name's Rabbi Wallerstein. With a big smile, right? What does it say? This crooked line, when you smile, straightens everything out. Absolutely. A smile straightens everything out. <laughs> so, hi, I'm Rabbi Wallerstein. Now, the way it works in the street, is the following. I'm in the street a lot. So, the way it works in the street is like this. If you're a rabbi, and you got a group of guys, a group of girls, and you walk up and you want to talk to them, there's always one person in the group who's going to try to knock the rabbi down. If that kid wins, that little debate, that little first minute debate, that kid wins, they will walk away from you like, loser. If you win, you, you win one-on-one, they're all like leaning in. So what do you have to say, rabbi? And this happens all the time. So there's this one girl, at that time she was just 14, jumps off, my wife's smiling because she remembers her very well, jumps off the couch, walks up to me, this girl is pierced, her eyebrows, her, her nose has a chain connected to her. To the, she had more metal on her face. I was lucky I'd been walking with a magnet. I would never gotten rid of her. <laughs> we would have been stuck together for life. <laughs> so she walks up to me. Now, I have never seen this. I'm teaching kids. I never saw this. She walks up to me. She's got this tongue ring that's going up and down. Bobby's talking to me. And she gets into my face. And she's like, yo. And I'm not going to say what she said. She said Blank you, Rabbi! I'm like, huh? <laughs> Nobody ever in my life talked to me that way. Like, yeah, yeah, you don't like that? Blank Judaism! Blank God! Blank you, blank the Jews! I'm like, good night, good night. Hello, any drug, any language, I don't know what you speak. I'll see you later. Zeigesundstag. <laughs> I never heard that word with God's name. I never heard that word with I never heard that word from a Jewish I never heard anything like this. And and she is really angry and she's spinning on me. She's like in my face. So I'm sitting in the mic. Shem, telegram right now would be very good. Help me. Help me. You know, because sometimes you're in the street and, and you don't know what to say. And, and you, you know, Hashem talks to you in your head through much trouble. That's how God talks to you. God never spoke to me. God talked to you every second of the day. What do you think? You came up with those thoughts? How do you produce thoughts? Right? Rabbi says, Mashal is Belevish. You say, Ako Chaini Lo'adam Das. Rechat Hashem Chaini Nadas. You think you're thinking? Coming from Shemayim. All your thoughts. That's what he talks. The other world is all Mashal. It's a world of Mashal. So I'm like, I'm asking for this Mashal. And Hashem sends it to me. And I turn to Abby, her name, and I'm like, I have to tell you something. You're really very special. And now I'm trying to stall so my brain can put things together. You're really very special. She's like, black the special thing, man. I know what else is coming out of my mouth. I'm done. I'm done. I'm like, no, no, no. I really mean it. You know, and I'm, I'm trying to get some gold over here. And I'm like, you see, you see, Abby, I came here tonight, and I was prepared to sit there for an hour and prove to all of you kids that there is a God. But... You believe in God. What do you mean I believe in God? I'm like, you got up here and you cursed him. You said blank God. You didn't say blank Martians. <laughs> Jupiter. So so you don't like him. 
You hate him. You're angry at him. But there's an emotion here. So you really believe in Hashem. I'm like, Abby, do you know how many kids, how much time I spend trying to prove God to kids? You believe in Hashem. You are way past a lot of the boys in my class. You're amazing. <laughs> All the girls on the couch are like, we like this, Grandma. <laughs> <laughs> they don't like Abby so much. Abby's always the one that's the outspoken one. And Abby's looking at me, and she's like, there's a big thing, because it depends what she says. She's like, the God. No. She says, no, they all go. She says, yes, they all stay. She's like, you're cool. <laughs> oh, there's the four o'clock. I spoke till four o'clock and we came. I remember walking out, closing the door, and she looked at me and she said, Rebbe Wallenstein, and she wasn't from New York, she's talking from out of town. She said, Rebbe Wallenstein, can I ask you something? I'm like, sure. Can I be your chavrusa? <laughs> can we learn together? She asked me. I don't really have Farooses right now. <laughs> okay. So, she became part of my family. And she used to come to us a lot. But there was one thing that really, really bothered me. That tongue ring. Because every time she talked, it would go up and down, it was nauseating. It was a little smiley. So it was like, smiling at you all the time. And my daughters, right? And my wife would do it. We remember, they were kids. And when she would be eating the soup or something like that, all my daughters would be leaning in looking. So I was like, not such good dinner. So I told her, I said to her, listen, Abby, give me the time. You're growing, you're learning, give me the time. She said something so sad. She said, Brother Wallerstein, the time is who I am. It's my identity. It makes me different. You will never get my tongue ring. Okay? I'm not fighting with you if that's your identity. It's very sad that a person can be so shrunk into a little tongue ring. But if that's your fun, I waited a couple of weeks. I don't give up. Anyone who knows me, I don't give up. I'm like, okay, the schmooze didn't work. Let's try money. <laughs> so she had no money. She was on the streets. I'm like, Abby, here's $500. You know, when you say it, it doesn't mean anything, but you whip it out. One, two, three. $500? Give me the tongue ring. She's like, and, and she needed the money. And $500 for her was like $50,000. She's like, Wallace, you don't understand. I give that up, I don't exist. I'm not giving you my tongue ring. Okay. It was Simchus Torah night. I remember it. We were by Rabbi Weinfeld Shul. And we had a great Simchus Torah. She was staying by me for Sukkot. We're now on our way home, corner of Avenue K. And East 22nd Street. These things in life you don't forget. And we come to the corner, and someone had told me a story about um, what is it, someone in Eric's Stroll that was getting Balichubas, and they were all throwing their earrings. The guys that were throwing their earrings, and he made a, a, a parochas on the, um, by the sacred Torah, and he used the metal on the, of, of, the, of the earrings to make this beautiful cross. I was like, that's like amazing. That's like amazing. And I heard this story, and all of a sudden it hit me. I'm like, Abby, I'll make you a deal. She goes, what, what do you want? I'm like, I want your tongue ring. She goes, you're not getting it. I'm like, this is the deal. You give me that tongue ring, I put it in my towel bag. I puncture my towel bag, and I will look at that every day. I will see that little smiley. And when I see that little smiley, I'm going to remember Abby for the rest of my life. She goes, are you, are you going to put my tongue ring in your towel bag? I'm like, that's right. People are going to be asking questions. <laughs> 
I'm going to do. She said, really, really, really? I said, yes. She said, okay. Close your eyes. I'm like, no. She's like, no, close your eyes and put your hand down. I put my hand on my wife's hair on the corner. She took it out of her tongue. She dropped it in my hand. Like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> Alcohol and a mikvah would have been good for us. <laughs> Anybody wants after the year, I'll show you my towels back. There's not one tongue reading in there. There's about 30. There's many Abbeys today. So, what was she looking for? What was she looking for? She was looking for recognition. Until I said that I would think about her every day, she felt that nobody was thinking about her. So the only way she's going to get you to think about her is to do something very foolish, very outlandish, and put a tongue in her tongue. But once somebody said, I will think about you every day, I care about you, the tongue was much better in a towel's bag than in her mouth. What a lesson about our children. Ikirani. Mommy and Tati, just give me recognition. Mora and Rebbe, just give me recognition. Husband and wife, a wife just wants recognition. And us guys, we also want recognition. Women don't realize that a good word to a husband gives him the energy to do unbelievable things. And a bad word destroys him. And guys don't realize and don't understand that just Kiki Rani, just giving recognition, I was saying it the other day. Imagine a guy comes home after being married 22 years and he brings her a dozen roses. What does a dozen roses cost? $10! You try to give your wife after 22 years that you're married, walk in and take out a $10 bill and say, here, happy anniversary. <laughs> it's not going to be a happy anniversary. <laughs> That's for sure. So how come if you bring her a dozen roses... She's melting. Wow. Thank you. I'm going to put it in water in my best crystal vase. Right? And sometimes you can even get away with one rose. Guys, one rose, two bucks. <laughs> Try to give her two bucks, see what happens. <laughs> you come home on a Tuesday night out of nowhere and you bring your wife a rose, you know what she's going to say? What did you do wrong? <laughs> Why are you doing this? Right? But honestly, Wow, why? Why is it? Why is it ten dollars is worth it? But the roses in because if you bought me a dozen roses, it means you went to a store, you stopped in the middle of work, you thought about me, you picked out a dozen roses, you paid for it, you wrote a card. Wow, that doesn't exist anymore. We just send a five-second text. Yeah, us. Uh, we don't even know how to read a, write a card. We send this text and then it disappears because you're over your text and you have to get rid of them, right? And a card is forever. I still look at my grandmother sent me a card. I have a card when I was nine years old. She wrote me a beautiful card. I still look at it. But I can't look at someone that sent me a text a year ago. So cards are out of style, but cards are where it's at. So why is the woman so appreciative? Because you, Hikirani, you gave me recognition. You stopped in the middle of your day. That's why it says, Tfilas Mincha is the most important Tfilah. Because Shafras, you didn't really stop when you just got up. My review before you go to sleep. In the middle of the day, you stopped working and you went to Davin? So it says, Mincha is the most powerful filler because you gave Hashem recognition. You stopped everything and gave him a Mincha. That's why it's called a Mincha. It's a present. Mincha is a present. To stop and give recognition, that's the greatest present. Now let me tell you what happened with Abby. Who's now Abigail. Don't call her Abby. So this year, me and my wife, my wife and myself, went to Territus Row, the Lagbomer, 
and we're it's Erev like Roman, it's Erev Shabbos, Shabbos like what? And we're pushing our stuff up that hill like they, it was very hard, we're schlepping, and all of a sudden from behind me there's a voice, Ready! Now, usually girls don't call you Rebbe, right? <laughs> but it's a very endearing name. Rebbe is a name that you have to earn. So I'm like, I don't know who this is. I turn around. There she is. She's standing there with her hair covered so much that her eyebrows <laughs> were covered. Her kerchief was, that's my wife, was still here. I'm like, that's something new, right? Okay. Three, a little kindleach. And her husband. And I'm like, Abby? And she's like, no, Abigail. <laughs> I haven't seen her in a very long time. I'm like, where are you? She goes, we live in Eretz Yisrael. We made Aliyah. We're living somewhere near the West Bank on a, on a Moshav. Yeah, she's fire. She's still the same fire. And we're living on a Moshav. And, and Rebbe, you're not going to believe it. I'm like, what? She's like, I'm a mad Rebbitson. <laughs> I am the third grade Mora in the in the school. I'm like, what? that's right. And what's wrong with you? I'm like, excuse me. Now then I'm now right, oh, here we go. Right? I'm looking any rings and see what's going on over here, right? And she goes, What's wrong with you, Rebbe? I'm like, what? She goes, how could you now live in Eretz row? Every step you take is a mitzvah. How could you be in Eretz Yisrael? And ladies and gentlemen, she hasn't changed. All she did was take an emotion of hate that she had for Hashem and turned it into an emotion of love. She just turned the emotions. She's on fire! It's the same fire as that 14-year-old girl that was in my face. Except this fire is for Eric Yisrael. And this fire is for Kedusha and her children. I'm, I'm looking at her like, is she more religious than I am? Never, ever give up. Give recognition. Give time. Give love. Never give up. If Avi can be a third grade Mora and a Moshav and a Yisrael, you know what her husband does? He bakes matzahs for badats. Because the Jewish soul, don't decide that someone's a Jew when someone might be a person of peace. So I want to end with this, and I'd like to say this to the Chicago community, and I really, really appreciate that you came out tonight, and, and it was a very warm Shabbos in the middle of December. And I'm not talking about the, the weather outside, I'm talking about the weather inside. So I want to end with this. Two more minutes, five minutes story. Two more minutes, five minutes. The story is as follows, the true story. Any, any lawyers in the room? This is a, uh, okay, here we go. Right. So uh, this is a, this is one of my Talmud who went to law school, and this is a story that was told by his professor actually in a class. I don't know if the story is true or it's just a story to help his, his to coach his students, but this is the story, this is what this how it went. So there was this very rich political, very big political man that was very, very wealthy, and he was accused of murdering a 17-year-old girl. And he hired a lawyer who was called the $5 million lawyer. The retainer was $5 million. This lawyer never lost a case in his life. You hired him, you paid him, you won. So this person who was accused of the murder, 
He was very wealthy, very big political figure. He hired him. Now, the guy went to go against him. The prosecutor was from the DA office, just an assistant DA. They have a lottery. Who gets the case? And he's going up against a guy who never lost. And he's a young guy out of law school. And everyone's like, the press is writing like, this is going to be over in three days. This guy is going to wipe the floor with this young lawyer. Okay. The case begins. I'm going to tell it to you very fast. The case begins, and the prosecutor lawyer gets up. Of course, the other lawyer has his bow tie. He's a big big shot. He's a big lawyer. And the prosecutor gets up, and he starts asking the witness. He hear screams, and yes, there were screams from the room. Were they female or male? And he's doing this whole thing. And they call up the defense lawyer to cross-examine. He gets up. And he says, so uh, you said it was at 3 o'clock that this happened. What kind of watch are you, were you wearing at the time? She goes, Timex. She goes, ah, that's a very cheap watch. Did you ever have it checked? She says, no. So would you say that it's possible that this happened at 2.59? The lady says, possible. How about 301? It's possible. I rest my case. Everyone's in the courtroom. He course examined the watch? Like, what's going on over here? This is the man. This goes on for a week. The prosecutor is prosecuting, and the defense lawyer is making chazik. He's doing nothing. And all of a sudden, the press starts to write that they think that the $5 million lawyer had a nervous breakdown, and he lost it. Because he's doing nothing, he's losing the case, he's getting killed. And that was the poor guy who's sitting there, he's thinking to himself, I spent $5 million on this guy's been sugar. He's not doing anything for me. And he keeps telling him, don't worry. This is my job. Don't worry. Okay. End of the case. It took a week. End of case. The judge turns to the prosecuting, to the DA, and he says, summation. Summarize your case. And he gets up there. Now he's swaggering because he's about to beat the best lawyer in the United States. And he walks over to the jury, and he says, men and women of the jury, the accused is sitting there. Do you understand that he murdered a 17-year-old girl? She will never go to the prom. She will never get married. She has no future. She will never have children. And you must find it guilty, punishable by, by death. And he goes through this whole thing. And the jury's sitting there and they're like, 100%. This guy is so guilty. There is no question. He is so guilty. We are going to put him away. Okay? He finishes. He sits down. He's very full of himself. He did great. And the judge turns to the defense lawyer, a $5 million man. He says, summation. So he gets up, he walks over to the jury, he says, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, do you know the law in America? The law is to find someone guilty, it has to be beyond a reasonable doubt. Yes, we were coached, we know. He says, okay. He says, you're wondering, you're all wondering, why I'm not defending, and when I cross-examine, I'm not doing anything. He says, I'll tell you the truth. I could have saved you all a lot of time. You see, is there a body? Did anybody find the body of the girl? No. Do you know why? Because I spoke to this girl a week ago. She called me. She's not dead. Nobody killed her. She had a fight with her parents. She ran to Mexico. So I figured I'm going to stand here and cross-examine something that never happened. But I told her, this is a very serious situation. You need to get back here today. Today is summation. And I just got information that she's on her way here from the airport. And she will be here at 3 o'clock. So for me to sit here and summarize the case, there is no case. <coughs> so the judge says, why didn't you tell me this? He says, 
Fine. Recess till 3 o'clock. So they all come back at 3 o'clock. Everybody's sitting down. And they're waiting for her to walk in. 3 o'clock, 3.15, 3.30. All of a sudden at 3.30, the door opens up. Everybody jumps. A woman walks in. It's not a young girl. It's the clerk. Just switching with the clerk that's sitting there. <laughs> Everybody almost had a heart attack. <laughs> Four o'clock. Nothing. The judge turns to the $5 million lawyer. He says, listen, I don't know what kind of game you're playing. I don't know what you're up to here. But we're not going to sit here. Summation, if she walks in, she walks in. You must summarize the case. Well, he says, no problem. He says, men and women of the jury, so we know that the law is beyond a reasonable doubt. Do you agree? Yes. Is it true or is it not true that from the hour of 3 o'clock to 4 o'clock, all of you were looking at the door, waiting for this girl to walk in? And my luck, at 3.30, when that woman walked in, you all jumped. You thought it was her. Well, if you were looking at the door, and you thought it was her, then the prosecutor did not prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. You had enough doubt to think that she was going to walk through that door. Therefore, you must find my client innocent. Brilliant! Well, he gets $5 million. Brilliant lawyer! And the judge is sitting there and he's like, wow. He says, jury, you have to go inside the room. You have to make a decision. But I think that um, this lawyer has a very valid point. They go into the room, come out half an hour later. The lady gets up. This guy is patting the other guy, the lawyer on the back. He's like, I can't believe you pulled this off. You can do one thing a whole week, and you got me off in two minutes. You fooled everybody. He's like, wow. He says, yeah, just send me the check. (laughs) Anyway, the jury person gets up, says, we find the accused so-and-so guilty of murder. Now the whole place goes crazy. The judge says, well, it's in my court. Well, uh, the lawyer, the five million dollars, what are you talking about? You look at the way the girl up there, you all jump. He's screaming. All the newspapers are running all over the place. They're going crazy. Mistrial. The whole place is on wheels. Jury person says, please, 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 let's get quiet. Order in the court. You can think order in the court. Everyone sits down. Judge says, how did you come, how did you come to this conclusion? She says, I did. There's a young lady on the jury. She would like to speak to me. She gets up, and she says the following. What a story. I didn't go to law school, but this one, shh, says the following. She says, you see, I wasn't looking at the door. I was looking at the accused. From 3 o'clock to 4 o'clock, even when the clerk walked in, he never turned around to look at the door. (laughs) Which means he knew she wasn't coming through that door. And the only person in the whole world that could know that she's not coming through the door is the person who killed her. Guilty. And the lawyer gets up and he walks over to the accused and the client and he says, You idiot! If you would have turned around for two seconds and looked at the door, you're a free man, now you're a dead man. So the professor told my student, no matter what you come up with, coach the client. Tell him what you're going to do. Because no matter how brilliant you are, if you don't tell the client what you're going to do, you're going to lose. And that was a class called Coach the Client. And I heard this story. And 
I said, what a Worcester hospital. The best lawyer in the world. Brilliant. And he loses the case because the client didn't turn around. I'm in Chicago now. It's Thursday night. I think I spoke 13 to 14 times. <laughs> Contrary to popular belief, I am not an entertainer. If I wanted to be an entertainer, I would not be in Chicago. I'd be on Broadway. <laughs> so I am not an entertainer. When I come and I speak, I'm speaking to help people change and grow. No matter how many stories I'm going to tell you, no matter how many classes you're going to hear from other rabbis, men, no matter how many Muslims firm we're going to learn, those are all good lawyers. But if you sit in your chair, and after all this, you don't change. You don't turn to look at the door. You're guilty. All the stories and all the musr and all that stuff is worthless. Unless you make a change in yourself, in your family, in your community, in the people around you. But it first has to start with yourself. If you're not going to turn around and look at that door, you are guilty. Because that means that you don't truly believe anything that you heard. So I want to give you all a bracha. And my bracha is that individually and as families and as a community, we should all turn around and look at that door. And if we as a Jewish nation give us give the people a chance to tell us why they really came, Give our children a chance to explain husbands and wives. Give each other a chance to explain. And actually do this, and actually turn to the door. What's going to happen is if Klai Yisrael as a whole turns to the door, the door will open. And not a clerk will walk in, but Moshiach will walk in. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.